You're listening to the Brick by Brick podcast, where we take you from the ground up on real estate investing. Join us on our entrepreneurial voyage through the world of flipping houses, managing rental property, and building a real estate empire. Welcome back to the Brick by Brick podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I am John Errico here as always with Ryan Goldfarb. We have a great episode today. We're entitling it, How Disconnected Electrical Service Cost Us $30,000. And we'll get into what that means very shortly. But as a prelude to that topic, uh, more broadly, what we're going to be talking about today is one specific project that Ryan and I completed earlier this year in Atlantic City. It's probably our largest single renovation, I think. Is that right? Yeah, I mean... Among our largest single renovations, um, I think it's probably our coolest renovation. Um, We took a quite large, quite dilapidated uh, single family home, uh, and I'll say single family home with kind of like bold underlying italics because that's a large part of this story. We took a single family home and converted it back into kind of its former glory. It was, I don't know, I don't even know how many bedrooms you would originally consider it to be. Many. <laughs> Multiple bedrooms. <laughs> it was a many-bedroom, several-bathroom home. Yeah. And now it's a seven-bedroom, four-and-a-half-bathroom home that's maybe 500 feet away from the beach and is probably our premier, or at least among our very premier, short-term rental Airbnb properties in Atlantic City. And we're very, very proud of the renovation, very happy about it. So we're, we're going to take you through the process of buying, renovating, staging it, renting it, all that sort of stuff. And part of that process is how a, an electrical service issue ended up costing us tens of thousands of dollars in a very roundabout way. But let's go, let's, let's kind of zoom out a little bit and go back to the very beginning. So Ryan, I think that you were the person to identify this house originally. Is that correct? Perhaps. I remember we were on a trip to AC and I think it, we put it on our list of places that we were excited to see. And I remember being particularly enthused about this one. And it was one of those rare instances where my enthusiasm was not tempered after actually seeing it. And I think we all walked our way in agreement that this was a must get. My recollection was that it was listed for quite a bit above where we ended up buying it. I don't know if it was listed at like two and a quarter or closer to 200 grand, but I know that we ultimately settled at $150,000 as purchase price. And I think, I don't think we envisioned at the very beginning how much work this was going to be. Right. So this is early on. And if you listen to previous episodes of this podcast, you know that Ryan and I uh, invest in Atlantic City and we do a lot of short-term rental investing in Atlantic City. We also do some short-term rental stuff in North Jersey. But this is pretty early on in our interest in investing in Atlantic City, I would say, to, as, a, as a team. Um, I'd yeah. been investing kind of individually before that. But this is part, we, we bought in that same year, we bought, I guess, three properties kind of in quick succession. So th- this one in particular, we're talking about 2019. So at this point, John had one short-term rental in Atlantic City that I was not a part of. We had just closed on our first one together that we were just starting construction on. Um, I think we had maybe demoed it at that point. And we had another one that I think we were under contract on, but hadn't yet closed on. So this was really our right. first wave of experience in, in Atlantic City together. Yeah. And I think we had not really done any big renovation projects. I believe we were probably at the beginning of one renovation project or maybe in the middle yeah, of we one had renovation demoed. project. I think we had demoed. We had demoed our, kind of our first project. So we identified the house. I think it was probably like quarter two of 2019. And then we ultimately closed in it at the very beginning of August. And as Ryan said, it was $150,000. And the house, to give you a sense, the owner of the house is and was disabled. So he needed a wheelchair to get around. He had a very large wheelchair ramp to the left of the house. That's how he accessed the house. And because of that, the first floor of the house, of this house is a bit above ground raised. So to get to the first floor, you have to go up some stairs. But there were, uh, there's a basement of the house as well, a full basement, and two floors above the first floor. And I was under the impression that he hadn't ever been in the basement or the second and third floor for years. I don't know what your memory is, but I mean, I, I remember hearing like possibly decades. He, he personally had not ever been to those parts of the house. I think at the time, 
at the end of his time living there, I think he was only using the first floor and I don't think anyone was living in the house with him. So the second and third floors, I mean, they, they truly had not been touched in decades. I think he had owned the house since the 1970s individually. I think he probably with his family had lived in the house maybe since the 50s or 60s. I, I believe his family had originally bought the house from in the 1950s. And in some context, the house we believe was built probably in the 1910s, something right. like that. Right. And it was built as a single family home. I mean, it's pretty obvious from the outside that it looks like a single family home. However, in the many years between 1910 and 2019, it had undergone a number of renovations to convert it into a hodgepodge of something. The first floor was kind of set out as a self-contained you know, living space with a kitchen, bathroom, a bedroom. The second and third floors, I would say, were a weird combination of kitchens, kitchenettes, bathrooms, bedrooms. And then the basement was almost two separate apartments, as I recall. It was very odd in that it that you couldn't really, you could access the basement from the first floor. There were also kind of like maybe six doors or something to get into the basement from every single side. Very strange. And also the back half of the house, or at least the back maybe quarter of the house was sort of like collapsing because there'd been a roof leak that had been going on for years or decades that had never been fully addressed as my recollection. And the owner also, I would say, you know, did not keep the, the home in a pristine condition. Let me say it that way. So like there was a lot of trash, furniture, just stuff all around. So you walk in and it's, you know, you're kind of walking over stuff, you know, just old carpet, wood paneling, yellow lights type of, you know, claustrophobic uh, kind of feeling. That was what the house was when we first bought it. I don't want to overstate it, but that's, that's how I felt. I believe that we immediately began demo, right? Is that, is that your recollection? I don't, think it's a, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that we had four or five 30-yard dumpsters worth of just belongings and furniture and stuff removed from the house before we even started actual demo. Yeah, and I, I want to I touch on that because I think this was our first mistake. First Mis of many. Yeah, first of many. Um, I was almost to say mistake, uh, you know, different word, but yeah, definitely mistake. Um, and the mistake was that, so at the time we were working with someone who was both our real estate agent and also someone who we wanted to kind of bring into the fold of our construction uh, project. And he was local to Atlantic City. We were living in North Jersey at the time and we kind of deputized him with saying, can you handle the, the clean out? We'll order the dumpsters, which luckily we're able to put right next to the house on the driveway. But you kind of handle the logistics of getting it cleaned out. We're not going to hire like a clean out company. We're not going to hire like a demo crew. Like you just figure it out. So he ultimately just got, I would say, random guys that he didn't know at all to just show up and just start throwing stuff away. We were there day one. I remember it was very fun. We were all there together with like hammers and like crowbars and stuff. But he you know, he found these guys literally off the street. I forgot we were paying them per day, but like whatever, $150 a day or something like that. And these were like the slowest clean out crew of people you could ever imagine because they're being paid by the day. So, you know, they would like work maybe an hour or two or something like that and then take a break and go out for lunch and, you know, whatever. And the guy that was overseeing it, you know, was kind of there to open up the door and then there to pay them at the end of the day. And that was, that was basically it. So a, a clean out that we thought we were saving money on because we weren't paying like a clean out company that probably could have taken like, I, would, I don't know, a week or something, maybe two weeks if uh, people were actually doing it, ended up taking like well over two months, maybe three months or something. We're paying three guys or four guys, you know, $150 each a day times however long that was. So that ended up costing more than it would have cost and take took like way, you know, much, much longer. Not to say that it's not hard work. Uh, I mean, I think demo and clean out is the epitome of hard labor intensive work. But in retrospect, with a few other projects under our belt since then, I think what cost us 20 plus thousand dollars, then we now could have had done for closer to 10. I think some projects that we've done more recently, I think have, have been of an, of a similar scope and similar size. And we've done in that, in that $10,000 range. Yeah. While the building was being cleaned out, 
uh, or demoed or whatever you call it, we had we were aware that we were going to need to uh, submit plans to the building department for the scope of the renovation that we were doing, because we knew that we were basically going to be gutting the whole building, you know, ripping down all the walls, whatever else, and reconfiguring the, the entire layout. So we we had our architect or drafts person draw up the plans, and we talked about the plans. I think it was probably maybe around the end of the year, I want to say, where we we thought, you know, we're ready to submit the plans. And at the same time, we were also soliciting bids from contractors, which is something that we, I think we did a fairly good job of getting contractors in there. This is another thing we relied on the guy local in Atlantic City to do that he was unable to do. But we ultimately, you know, rounded up a bunch of contractors, got them in, got wildly different prices. I mean, I remember, wasn't there a contractor that said, like, I wouldn't touch this for less than like 600 grand or something like that or whatever. Ironically, I think the number that he told us then that we thought was so insane was not too far off from what it ended up costing us. But I want to say it was around like four. No, it was like 350 or 400 grand. Oh, I thought it was more than that. No, I think it was was way more than that. So we had a bunch of contractors come in, some GCs. We we were kind of of the opinion that we were going to sub everything out, but we would do some work kind of in-house. We had a guy down there that was capable of doing like drywall and framing. And then we had someone else that was capable of doing like, you know, finish work, that sort of stuff. So like we could, we could do that in house and then we'd sub out everything else. I think we settled on the quotes at the end of 2019 and we went to submit the plans to the building department and the building department had of Atlantic city, the building department had, I would say minimal comments. I think there was a, like a flood flood vent, flood vent issue in the basement, something like that, which was very easy to solve. But one of their minimal comments was, you need to get a certificate of land use from the CRDA. CRDA being the zoning authority over this particular part of the city. And I think at the time we were like, what is the CRDA? Or like, I think we knew what it was, but we had no sense of kind of what their authority or scope was. Yeah, we, yeah, I think we we certainly were familiar with them, but I think in name only. I don't think we realized that they had land, land use jurisdiction. Yeah, it's for those of you who have not listened to our previous episodes and know the dynamics of Atlantic City, Atlantic City is a very unique city in New Jersey, I think probably in the whole country, in that something like, you know, 60% of the city is controlled in every normal respect by the city of Atlantic City, and the remaining 40% or 30%, which is primarily the part of the city that borders the Atlantic Ocean on the boardwalk and the beach and where the casinos are, is controlled by at least in terms of land use authority, zoning authority is controlled by a different organization, which is the CRDA, the Casino Reinvestment uh, Development Authority. That organization is actually an arm of the state government that was put in place originally to reinvest taxes and other revenue raised from casino operations and has kind of evolved into this uh, zoning authority I, you know, it depends on who you talk to, but I, I would say the, the rationale being that the city of Atlantic City was sort of punished for being unable to administer their zoning laws correctly or in a way that uh, the, the state wanted, I suppose. And as a result, now the CRDA is in control of zoning authority in the tourism district of Atlantic City. But at the time, I, I think we didn't even really conceptualize that we had bought a house in the tourism district of Atlantic City because the other properties or property that we had at the time was not in this particular area. So we went in, we saw we had to get a land use, certificate of land use from this authority. We had no idea what that was. We went, I remember, to the office. I think you and I went, this is like in December uh, or November. We were told by the secretary we had to fill out a form uh, just to, you know, kind of like check the box. And we submitted this form. <laughs> Little did we know. Oh my gosh. <laughs> we submitted this form and uh, I think we got a message back saying, no. <laughs> you know, like, this is not going to happen for these 15 reasons. So the, the, what we were asking for was a certificate of land use that reflected that we could use the home as a single family home, which we thought would be obvious because single family home is probably like, the least restrictive, most permissive, you know, use that you could ask for in most cases. And beyond that, if any, if any person familiar with housing, which is basically anyone in the world, drove up to this house and you asked them, what type of building is this? They would have said a single family home. Right. It, it looks like a single family home. I would say the interior of it was kind of rambling and, you know, bizarre, but it probably wouldn't 
dissuade you from your conclusion that it's a single family home. You would say it's a single family home that's been renovated in bizarre ways over the previous, you know, generations. It comes to turn out that the area in, in which this home is located, and in fact, this is true of all of the tourism district, as a right, it is not possible to build single family homes in this area. The zoning does not allow for single family homes. The zoning of the tourism district, and there are different zones within the tourism district, but all the zoning of the tourism district does not permit essentially, you know, residential use in that form. You can build three family homes or higher density. You can build high rise casinos. You could build anything of that ilk. You can build single family homes if you build a cluster of 10 of them together. Right, right. A PUD. Right. So the conundrum was that we were submitting this land use certificate for a single family home in a zone where you could not build a single family home. It'd be analogous to say, you know, we we have our home in our neighborhood and we submit we wanted to build a 15 story office building there only to come to find out that you can't build a 15 office story building in the middle of a residential neighborhood. But in this case it was a home surrounded by vacant lots and a few other homes. We assume that, you know, pretty obviously the single family home that we had could be renovated as a single family home. So this began, I would say, a saga that ultimately lasted maybe nine months, eight mm -hmm. or nine months yep. before its resolution. And a lot of that time was spent just figuring out what it is that we had to do. Um, I would say that there were many times during that process where we almost gave up entirely. And I think at one point, we had drawn up plans to show the home as a three-family home right. uh, with each floor being a separate unit. So there, there were two ways, I guess, to solve the process. The first, the first way, which is the way that we pursued for probably 90% of the time, is to go through the variance process. At the time, not knowing anything about zoning in Atlantic City or really zoning at all, land use at all, our assumption and what we've been told by CRDA officials was that getting a variance would be very challenging. We were told that only one other person had ever gotten a variance to build or renovate a single family home in all of the tourism district, which I think is actually correct, but only because of the second reason that I'll explain why. To get a variance is difficult, particularly the type of variance that we were requesting, which in, in New Jersey, there are different types of variances. We were asking for essentially a variance that grants us the ability to use the property in a way that the zoning does not permit. Other variances might be for things like if the zoning says you need to have your building 20 feet away from the street, and we want to build a building 18 feet away from the street, or a building is 18 feet away from the street, that's a much more permissive and easier variant to get than the variance that says, I want to build a single family home where it's not permitted at all by the zoning. So we hired a land use attorney, a city planner, a whole host of different people that we consulted with trying to make this happen. We drafted, we had site plans, surveys, Survey. elevation certificates, all sorts of stuff that we put together kind of getting ready for the variance process because we were told essentially that was the only way to go forward. So I don't know how much we spent on this. I mean, it was thousands, you know, yeah, it's probably five to 10 grand, something in that range and months of time, because it would be, you know, uh, trying to coordinate with many different people, trying to figure out exactly what sort of arguments the CRDA would want to hear. The CRDA was also the you know, the Zoning Board of Appeals or Land Use Board or, you know, whatever you want to call it, that would review the applications for these variances. So I think it was at some point in the early summer after our guy, our planner, I guess it was, had come to us and said, like, you're not going to win. <laughs> or like, I give up, essentially saying, like, based on my conversation, you know, with the city official or the CDA official, like, you're not going to win that we said, the, the city official that we were talking to, which at this time we'd kind of become friends with, said, you know, basically, why are you doing this whole process? Why don't you do option B? So option B is, instead of getting a variance, we make the argument that the home, I guess the easiest way to describe it is that the use is grandfathered in. That's not a legal or, you know, land use term, but essentially at one point, where this home is located, a single family use was permitted. And because the single family use 
was permitted at one point and the home was legally used as a single family at that point, if the use continued from that point until today, then we can go to the CRDA, and this is true of any land use authority, and say, even though the zoning does not permit the home to be built as a single-family home, because we have an existing use as a single-family home, we can continue that use. In this context, that the point at which that became relevant was, I believe, prior to 1978 or thereabouts, where the current where the current land use uh, municipal land use code was adopted by Atlantic City. So any change or any grandfathered use would have had to exist prior to that point and then continued through today. Right. And single family homes were permitted up until that point. I think they were permitted after that point as well. But the operative time for the purpose of our analysis was that that date that Ryan had mentioned. So we were very lucky in that respect because the home had been owned by the same person for the whole time of this period of time. So we were able to craft an argument with the city and the CRDA, essentially showing that the use that this owner had, the owner, as we said before, is, was disabled and really had only ever accessed a single floor of the unit. He wasn't doing any other use. I, you know, our, our argument essentially to the CRDA was, well, if you can't qualify it as a single family home, if that wasn't the previous use, what what was the previous use? You know, what, how would you classify the previous use of the home? Because it had to be something. It had to be something. You know, it wasn't a, uh, it wasn't a casino. You know, it wasn't an office. It wasn't a retail space. You know, it wasn't a name any other use. It was a single family home. It was occupied by this guy as a single family home. And ultimately, after research into the, you know, tax archives and building sheets and all sorts of manner of stuff that itself took us weeks uh, and months to compile, we finally were able to craft an argument with the city, the CRDA official, who ultimately went into the home, as I recall, took pictures of the home. We were able to craft an argument with him that the home had a continuous single-family use from the 1970s, and therefore we were grandfathered in to this exception to the land-use laws that permitted us to renovate the home as a single-family home. Which was, uh, so that we got that approval, I think, fully 12 months after we bought the home, maybe 13 months. I think even more, yeah. Yeah. And this was something that was not at all on our radar to begin. We thought that we bought it in 2019. We were like, we're going to rush to get it ready for the summer of 2020. And we didn't get our land use approval until the end of the summer of 2020. (laughs) So we were way, way off kilter. And then we got our land use certificate and construction couldn't have been easier. We flew through it in three months and we were ready to go by New Year's. Yes, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> End of story. But as you might tell from Ryan's biting tone, it's just <laughs> razor wit. That is the opposite of what happened. So I think now we'll delve into kind of the the title of the podcast, which is how an electrical service issue costs us $30,000. So I feel like I explain the land use process in more detail than anyone cares to know about who isn't living in Atlantic City. But why don't I turn over the construction process to Ryan, who can describe the joys of our construction process. So one benefit to the year that it took us to get land use approval was that we, by the time we had land use approval, really had our ducks in a row for construction. What that meant was we were fully demoed. Obviously, all of the cleanout had been concluded. We had subcontractors lined up for plumbing, electrical, HVAC. We had framing teed up. So we were ready to hit the ground running because by this point, it was the fall of 2020. And we really desperately wanted to get the building online as a short-term rental for the summer season of 2021. Well, I'll say that we had everything lined up except for one component, and that component was the exterior deck. So we, as part of our renovation, there was an existing exterior staircase, something collapsing collapsing deck deck at the rear of the property. And part of our renovation was that we're going to rebuild the whole thing. We tear the whole thing down and rebuild the whole thing more or less from the ground up. And we thought that the scope of that project was not within anybody that we had at the time. We had a plumber, electrician, HVAC. We didn't really have a great framer. Still don't. We still don't have a great framer. (laughs) If you know anybody who does framing in Atlantic City, 
please call us immediately. But uh, we were using one of our kind of in-house guys to do the framing, but we were very certain that he would not be able to do the exterior framing because the guy, you know, could not really read plans. And the way that I, I mean, I, I have a vivid memory of doing this. The way that I told him how to do the interior framing of the house was that I was looking at the plans and I would walk, I would measure with a measuring tape look at where the wall was supposed to be, walk with him to there. And then he would, with a felt pen, mark on the ground where the wall was supposed to go and then figure out where the door was and where the closet was and all of that. So it's a miracle. We had a few issues with framing, but it's a miracle that based on that, we didn't have more issues with interior framing. But if you can imagine, that's how we did the interior framing. The exterior framing was, you know, putting in Footings huge and, columns, footings, yeah. you know, very kind of precise measurements, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it was an interscope. So we found someone, uh, we'll call him Mr. A. <laughs> <laughs> so Mr. A was recommended to us by another group that had used him for a similar scope. And he seemed great. He, he knew his stuff, knew how to re read plans, had a clear understanding of the scope. I want to say the timing of our introduction to him was the very end of 2020. And at that time, we were framing the interior. We had rough plumbing going on, rough electrical going on, rough HVAC, HVAC going in, um, which primarily consisted of the ductwork. So we, we gave him authority over the exterior work, starting with the deck. And... Do you rec I think we gave him the green light for the decking specifically in November or December. And then subsequent to that, we enlisted him to take care of the exterior siding and window installation. Does that, does that jive with your memory? Yeah, and doors, I think. And yeah, I think doors exterior and windows. doors as well, yeah. yeah. His scope kind of kept expanding because he seemed pretty capable. Right. And his pricing was reasonable. and. We didn't have anybody to do side. We had someone that could do siding, but they were coming from North Jersey. I think they were transitioning away from doing mm -hmm. projects outside of their like home area. And kind of when he was doing the decking, that kind of impacted a lot. He actually did some framing, as you recall, for that part right. of the house that I had mentioned That's before true. that was collapsing. He kind of reframed that rear part of the house because he had to do that before he could do the staircase for the deck that was right adjacent to that that rear. So... I think my, my recollection of the dates at this point is a are a little hazy, but I'm pretty confident that by January, we had given him the green light. We're ready for siding any day now. Let's, let's get the ball rolling here. Kind of handle that in conjunction with doing the decking. I think we had by this time, I want to say we had past rough inspections or were close to passing rough inspections for a lot of these things. Rough inspections being... The city comes out and inspects your plumbing, but the plumbing isn't, you know, connected to the water service or gas service, expects the electric, but the electric's not actually turned on, framing, you know, but you don't have insulation or drywall, something like that, I recall. Yeah, it's yeah. more or less the rough work that's behind the walls or what ultimately will be behind the walls. So, so we, we were getting close. Yeah. You know, yeah. So January, I think, I don't know that we had given him a deposit at that point, but it was very clear that he was going to be doing siding. He was getting getting his numbers together, giving us color options, and we were confirming confirming the look we were going for. And then, I think, I think by February, we realized that we knew exactly what we wanted, and we were just kind of like, we're getting kind of close to spring. Let's just, you know, let's just like get it up, get some get some movement on the siding, and uh, move on to the next thing. And I think at that point he. He had finished reframing the interior, the like skeleton of the deck, uh, the skeleton of the decks were, were already installed and his like very clear priority at that point should have been the siding. John's digging through our archives, trying to get some context here. I want to say we had passed all rough work by the middle of February. I see... A, a sticker for rough building, which is kind of the last rough thing that you pass. And that's from February 23rd. So we were done on February 23rd with electric, HVAC, plumbing, and building. And Mr. A had done, I think, all of the kind of the rough framing for the, the exterior, which we needed to do to pass rough framing. And I think he'd also probably replace the windows and the doors by that point. So we were we were at 
the end of February, I see a text between you and Mr. A saying, it looks great. I think that's a reference to the windows and decking, maybe. Has the siding arrived already? Yeah, so I'm, I'm actually going through my text archives with Mr. A, and I see about half a dozen messages asking for updates on the status of the siding. At this point, I think we were under the impression that it was ordered and that it was just a matter of getting it on site and getting a clear day to start the work. I guess at this point, we should kind of like discuss why we're talking about this at all, which is that there is one issue, which is the electrical issue that is relevant to this. So we, the existing electrical service to this house was, I think it was 60 amps, maybe. I don't know. It was something about, yeah, something like that. Way undersized. Way undersized. We were upgrading to 200 amp service, which is pretty common for newer homes anywhere in the US. And to change the service requires a number of things, but it most significantly requires essentially the power company coming and running a new cable from, or it can require the power company running a new cable from the main power line to your house. And then you installing a new meter and all the things required to connect the cable from the street to your house. We had our electrician, we had known about this the whole time. We we're going to do this. And our, our electrician had said, well, it doesn't make sense to do all this work because if you're redoing the siding, we're going to be ripping off all of the siding anyways, which is going to include the electrical panel, which is screwed into the house. Why don't we just wait until the siding is done? Then we'll put in the electrical panel above the new siding and connect the service at that point. Uh, you know, it'll all go very smoothly. So that's where our heads were at on February, whatever, 20th. I'm actually kicking myself going back and reading some of these text messages with Mr. A because I, I thought we were exaggerating how long the siding aspect of this project took. But from January and February, I see text messages confirming that he was going to be doing siding and that we had agreed on a price. And then from then on out, it's like a week at, at, at minimum, there's a weekly message checking in on the status of siding when he's, when he's starting, oftentimes with no response. That carries through to April when he starts asking questions about what color siding we're going to be using, which indicates that he obviously hasn't placed an order for any type of siding yet. We're being told like the lead time is like six weeks you know, because this is again, you know, we're, we're during COVID right. here. I see, so. I see on, on April 30th is the siding arriving today. Um, the next day, there is still no siding at New Hampshire. This keeps going. He'd also ripped off all the existing. That's right. another thing to mention is that he'd removed all the existing siding, I think, I want to say in January or February. Right. So we had a house that had no siding. I right. think we had like a house wrap or something like no, that. No, we, we didn't. So the first sign of progress actually was on May 4th, where we got pictures of house wrap on the house, which is what goes on between the exterior sheathing and the siding itself. Yeah. So the, the problem with this is that we are doing interior work during the winter with no exterior anything. So you could literally look into the house and all you could see is like the very original, you know, plywood equivalent, which was not plywood, but the original kind of sheathing for the house, which is like full of gaps and open. And then you could look right into and see the back of the insulation, the back of the two by fours, the back of the drywall. So imagine anytime it rained or it, the wind blew particularly hard, you could feel that inside the house. And we're, you know, putting drywall up, painting, trying to hope things will dry. You know, it's freezing outside because it's February in New Jersey, March. So that was kind of where we're at. And, you know, and as Ryan says, kicking stuff. I mean, we, we, were, we were going really, truly nuts um, trying to get this done. Finally, on one fateful day in May, Thursday, May 13th, we get a photograph of siding on one side of the building. And... I think within a day or two, one side was done and then another side was done. But I think it took another few weeks before the entirety of the facade was done. And the one, the, the issue with this, which filters into the discussion about the electrical, is that the last facet of the building that received siding was the front, the front of the building, the facade. And that was where the point of connection was going to be with the electrical service. For the sake of the delay with the electrical work, it didn't matter that the other three sides were done. The critical side was not. Um, so I think I want to say by the end of May or early June, we finally had 
the siding done, including the front of the building. And I would say at this time too, all of the interior work had basically been done. Right. I think that all of the interior- The carpentry. The carpentry, carpentry painting, cabinets, tile, uh, maybe the tile, not exactly, but basically everything inside had been done. We, we were really gearing up to launch at the end of May. Yeah, we, are, Memorial Day was our target. Memorial Day, right. So what, where we were left was that it was early to mid-June, and while most of the work on the inside was done, we needed the subcontractors to come back to finish setting up electrical fixtures, to finish installing plumbing fixtures, to, to fire on the HVAC system. It was also very hot this time of year, so we wanted to get air conditioning so guys could work more comfortably. We also had a, appliances coming, and we needed to turn on the gas service, and turning on the gas service requires having functional functional appliances and you can't have a functional appliance without electricity running. Yeah, so so here here's kind of where everything starts to unravel, which is as Ryan just said, we did not have electrical service at the house. We had everything connected, but we weren't able to connect the furnaces because they require electricity. We weren't able to connect any of our appliances because they all require electricity. Because we didn't have electricity, we therefore couldn't connect the appliances. Because we couldn't connect the appliances, we therefore couldn't get the gas turned on because we couldn't get the gas turned on. We couldn't pass the plumbing inspection because the plumbing inspection requires that the appliance, the final plumbing inspection requires that all the appliances are on and functional for the plumbing inspector to see. Similarly, because we couldn't pass, because we didn't have electrical service connected, we couldn't pass the electrical inspection because again, you have to have the electricity on to pass the inspection. We couldn't, because we couldn't pass those two inspections, we couldn't pass the building inspection or the HVAC inspection because those also require electricity. And in the case of the building inspection requires all the other inspections have already been passed. So we were in a really bad situation because the fact that we didn't have electricity was holding up the whole process. And the reason we didn't have electricity is because we couldn't run new electrical service from the street to our house. And all the while, I think the work that was being done was a lot more challenging or was made a lot more challenging because the existing ser electrical service that was run to the house was so bad, like so beyond repair that we couldn't even use it for temporary power. So we were running generators throughout. So we were either renting generators or using generators that we had owned, one of which got stolen, one of which was broken and, and I think was decommissioned for three or four months. So it really created about as, as much of a, or as many domino effects as you can possibly conceive of. So it all came to a head. The siding was done what do you want to say? In May? Say like, it was, it was, I think, mid-June, early to mid-June. Wow. That's when the sighting, I can't even, it even the, hearing it now is insane. It was the, the, the last, like the front, the facade of the building, I think was finally done then. So the sighting was done then and we thought we're finally saved. The sighting is done. All we will need to do then is now collect the, connect the electrical service. I think at this point we already had furniture in the house. Like we had, yeah. we had we'd yeah. set up all the furniture. I mean, we we're ready to go. All we need to do is connect the electrical service and that's it. So we, I, I think you are, you are the person that dealt with this, right? So why don't you tell the story of what it, what kind of what unfolded when we tried to do this? <laughs> Which aspect? Like calling the, like basically the fact that like, because we didn't get like the right card, like we couldn't, you know, you know. The final step of this process was finally getting the electrician back there. Um, he was connecting the service to the building and that was going to allow an inspection from the electrical company and the city to essentially green light the new service. So I don't they, remember. They had to green light the service before they could turn on. Right. Like we had to get the sign off before we could have electricity. And to be clear, it was, it's inspected by both the city, like the building department of the city as an electrical inspection and also by the utility company. So his work was completed. He was ready for this inspection with the electrical company. And we had, I think I, I had called the construction office that is in charge with, or in charge of these types of issues. Uh, it's not handled by the general customer service and tech support arm of the, of the electrical utility. So by the time we got in touch with them, it was obviously still in the, in the midst of COVID. They were re working remotely. And the only way to contact the field office was to either leave a voicemail on a central uh, answering machine or to shoot them an email. I did both. Uh, I did both, I think, daily for a period of about a week. 
And the initial response that I got was that the application was never put in for the new service. I can neither confirm nor deny that that was the case because I think there was an attempt to submit an application of some sort. But I think certainly the electrician dropped the ball a little bit in this regard. But after a tremendous amount of follow-up and I want to say another three weeks or so. And we're, we're going insane at this yeah. point because now we're in June and right. we're approaching July. We thought, well, we, we missed Memorial Day, but we can make July 4th. Right. So we're like, we're ready to go. We're just waiting on this last thing to happen. There was a delay. Certainly we were delayed by the inspection from the utility company. But we also had, I think, two or three attempts at a service inspection with the city inspector because he had a very particular way in which he wanted the service connected. And our electrician has done this on numerous occasions, and I, I think in different municipalities and with this, different inspectors. And it seemed like this, was, this guy was just overly particular. Nonetheless, we probably lost about a week to like trial and error and getting things right for this one specific guy over two or three inspections. Do you happen to see in Slack or in our message history when the final day of, or when the day finally came that we were approved for the electrical service? Was it, did it bleed into July? It was in July. Okay. So at some point in July, we finally got approval and we thought we were going to be good to just turn things on. But yet again, more issues unfolded. At this point, we realized, or at this point, our electrician realized that the other electrical company that he works with, who he often sub or who, you know, they pass business back and forth between, he had subcontracted a lot of the rough work out to this company. And by the time the walls were all closed and they finally had electric to the building and they were troubleshooting all the different outlets and switches, he realized that there was a lot of uncertainty about how certain things had been wired up. So to his credit, he this was his issue and he dealt with it as he needed to with plenty of extra man hours that I'm sure he hadn't planned for. But there were probably another there's probably another week or two of him and his guys troubleshooting a lot of the work that they had done within the building to make sure that all the switches and outlets worked properly and that everything was on the right circuit. In a world where we hadn't waited five months to have the siding done. That's, that's something that would have been handled two or three months earlier. Um, yeah, it, I think like, it probably wouldn't have delayed us to the extent that it had, but all of these delays kind of compounded on each other and created the, the perfect... I think in an ideal world, we would have had the electrical service on in February right. uh, or in March, just for many reasons, but just for ease of working. So I'm, I'm looking through my notes. We actually got the electrical service on on July 8th. That was the day that it got on. And again, as I said before, because we didn't have any electricity, we couldn't pass any other you know, inspections and something about contractors is that, you know, they don't want to come back to your house 15 times. So they wanted everything to be ready. So we had to really wait to have the electrical service on before a plumber would come back. He didn't want to come back and just wait around and do nothing. The HVAC guy. So we ultimately passed the plumbing inspection. I think the end of July, I think the electrician finished up maybe the last week of July. I want to say something like that. And then, you know, we, we were able to pass the other inspections, but I, I, you know, it wasn't until I forgot exactly when the first guest arrived, but it was not until the very end of July or possibly the beginning of August. Yeah, I think it was the very end of July. That we had, we were able to actually host people at this property. The single most frustrating aspect of this is there have been many instances where we did not have manpower and we, you know, we had one group working on like 15 different things and it just wasn't reasonable that they were going to be able to get everything done within the period of time that we had hoped. But in this instance, we we had given this guy, Mr. A, we had given him autonomy over essentially all of the exterior work beginning in November. And he had seven, eight, nine months to get this stuff done. And I mean, the amount of, the number of days he spent actually working at the site during those eight or nine months, you could probably have fit into one month. Oh, totally. Yeah. But the, the, you know, the ultimate slowdown was because we were waiting on this guy. We could not get the electrical service turned on and the electrical service. The reason why we said that this cost us $30,000 is that if we were able to, I mean, if we're able to get the, I don't think that even if we'd had the electrical service on, we would have been ready for Memorial day weekend. But I think that there would have been no problem being ready for the 4th of July. 
And if we had been able to rent the property throughout July or half of June or whatever, there's no doubt that we would have made $30,000 of revenue at least. And because of that one issue and the sensitivity that Atlantic City has towards the summer and the tourism season, we lost $30,000 in uh, in rental. And it's such an insane thing to say because, you know, obviously $30,000 is a lot of money, even in the context of what turned out to be a $300,000 renovation or 350 or whatever the exact numbers are. It's still, you know, 10% or around the entire budget of the renovation. You know, what for $30,000, we could have done, we could have hired, you know, we could have done the siding twice. Oh, we could have done the siding <laughs> twice. We could have, we probably could have bought a whole house generator twice and installed. I mean, we, we could have done so many insane things that we lost out of because of this issue. Not only did the, not only did all of the delays build upon each other, but the fact that they all culminated in being the difference between being online for Memorial Day weekend at the end of May versus being online at the end of July. If that had happened at a different time of year, it might have been $10,000 in lost revenue. But as it was, I mean, I think for the two months that that delay may have cost us, we could be looking at even north of $30,000, knowing what, you know, knowing the kind of performance that we've been looking at for that time of year at comparable properties. So uh, I think it was a, a very hard way of learning the lesson that the most, the single most important thing in this business is to work quickly and to work efficiently. And time is not your friend. So sort of like speed at all costs. If you need new electrical service, uh, do that quickly. <laughs> do that at the beginning of the thing. Yeah, we, we, uh, the first person who stayed at this property arrived on July 27th. and Probably uh, spent $2,300 for three nights or something like that. That's exactly what it was. <laughs> <laughs> How did you, it was exactly, well, it was uh, a little bit less than $2,300 for three nights. If you asked me, if you asked me when did the first guest, guest arrive, I would have said July 27th. You know what their name was? No, but I remember it was a name that, a, a, a not common name. It was uh, Bethlehem or, yeah, yeah, and not exactly that name. I won't, I don't know how many people <laughs> have that person's exact name, but similar to that. Yeah. The good thing about the renovation is that we learned a tremendous amount about uh, the CRDA zoning. I think that kind of the, the work that we did with the CRDA and to kind of get zoning permits and all that permissions led us to a lot of the stuff that we do now because in so doing that, we, we met a lot of people and learned a lot. We also learned a lot about the construction process, about thinking what not to do. We didn't That's mention, we sure. just kind of glossed over this, but we had a lot of you know other issues with the quality of framing, unevenness of flooring, painting issues, finish issues, all that. And we've, I think, wisened up to that quite a bit with, you know, so now we're in the off season of 2021. We're looking to have our projects start in the summer of 2020. Or, or we're looking for our stuff that we're renovating now to be ready to go in the summer of 2022. Again, focusing on Memorial Day weekend. We are progressing on one of them. <laughs> we're waiting on uh, city permits and all sorts of stuff for others. But I think we're approaching this in a much different frame than we are, than we had this project. And I think it's going to be a better result. Whether we make Memorial Day of 2022 or not, I don't know. Um, I hope we do at least on one of them. But I think that this was, we're not going to make these same mistakes again. Let me say it that way. We won't make the same mistakes again. We'll make different mistakes likely, but this same, these mistakes we're not going to make again. We're not going to be using Mr. A's services for certain. Which is so. really a shame because the quality of his work was as good as anyone else that we've worked with. Yeah. He does good quality work and uh, his pricing it's, was reasonable. Yeah. It's, it's no. the old adage. You get, you get, you can, you have speed, cost and quality. You can pick two at best. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that whatever we pick, I would pick speed. <laughs> so <laughs> I think John's two picks would be speed and speed. Speed and speed. Well, I would say speed and quality. I would say cost is the one that in yeah, a lot within, of these projects has to go. Yeah. I think one other big lesson that we've learned uh, in part from this project, but between or across all of our projects is I think at the beginning, like we were reluctant to make decisions or we overlooked the importance of speed because we were so focused on cost in large part because we thought cost just had to, like we, we thought we had to do everything as inexpensively as possible. Yeah. And now that we've been through this a bunch of times, we have a much better sense of what things should cost. So if we think the quality is going to be there and we think the speed is going to be there, as long as it fits within our band of reasonability cost-wise, 
we're generally okay moving forward. I think the most recent, you know, we're trying out a new framer on one of these projects that we're targeting for next summer. And I think his initial quote for framing for more or less an entire house was $21,000. And I think we were hoping that we were going to be in like the low to mid teens. We ended up settling at $18,000. And I have not lost any, any sleep over that now because no. I think the the idea of hemming and hawing, trying to find someone less expensive for another month or two is not worth the $3,000 we might save. If you're curious to know more about this specific project, we have some pictures of the project actually on Ryan's Instagram. At RT Goldfarb. And if you want a video of like the like the the middle of the project, I there's a video on my YouTube channel, That DIY Couple. You can just search by the least viewed videos. This is like, uh, <laughs> it's right there. It's called my $250,000 renovation mistake, which and, at the time uh, I thought it was going to be $250,000. It turned out to be $350,000. And, so, and to be clear, that DIY couple is not me and John. It is John and his wife, Shannon's. Yeah, yes. John and yes. his lovely wife, Shannon. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yes, yes. Yeah, no, we haven't created our ryan and john couple channel yet but it is it is we do, uh, have, we do have that airbnb profile though <laughs> we do have the airbnb profile yes we have some bona fides in any case we really appreciate you guys listening to this episode this is a little bit of a, a rambling episode a, a specific project but I, I hope that this was helpful and interesting and, and you're able to learn a little bit about from our failures <laughs> a little bit about what not to do as always, if you have any questions or would like to chat with us about uh, this project or atlantic city or real estate in general feel free to contact us through email. Uh, my email address is john, J-O-H-N, at libertyhudson.com. And I am ryan, R-Y-A-N, at libertyhudson.com. We always encourage people, if you enjoyed this content, to subscribe, if you can, on the platform that you use to listen to our podcast. Leave a comment, if you can. We uh, love communicating with people. We've actually met a lot of people through the podcast that have been really great. And we, we've loved talking with them and learning from them and growing with them in our real estate journey. So thank you all for those of you listening out there. But until next time, we will be back with a new episode. Thank you again for listening. Don't forget to visit us at BrickXBrickRealEstate.com for free content to help you along your real estate journey and to follow along on our projects. Subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcast app and engage with us online via Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and BrickXBrickRealEstate.com. See you next time on the Brick by Brick Podcast.